Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And you know, Julie, we're sitting here using our brains to speak. And uh, and listeners are out there using their brains to uh, to hear or to interpret the sounds coming through their ears. That's right. And, uh, and it, it just really gets... Crazy mind blowing when you start thinking about about ourselves as a brain and 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 think about the walls that are often up when the brain tries to look at itself and tries to view itself and understand itself. Whoa! Hold on a second. <laughs> You're shattering my brain right now. Well, but yeah, there's also often this this kind of cognitive blindness that, yeah. that sets in when we when we try and understand. What we are, uh, you know, well, we're also guts. We're also all these things as, we, as we've explained in, in other podcasts. But are you talking about consciousness? Yeah, consciousness itself. Yeah. Um, what are we? What's going on in our mind? And so uh, recently uh, we actually decided, hey, let's go ask an expert on this, right? Yeah, we did. We actually talked to neurosurgeon Dr. T. Glenn Pate from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And we wanted to talk to him about one of the, the biggest myths out there about the brain. Um, which is, I'm sure everybody knows, is that, that we only use 10% of our brain. And he's actually been in brains, right? I mean, he has oh, been yeah. like elbow deep in, in brains before. That's right. Yeah. He, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, I was about to use some sort of fly fishing metaphor, <laughs> but I'm sure he doesn't have to wear fly fishing gear. But yeah, he's deep in there and, um, He's the guy to ask about this. So we do know that this was perpetuated by psychologist William James, who in the early 1900s said that the, quote, the average person rarely achieves but a small portion of his or her potential, uh-huh. unquote. So, I mean, that seems, you know, yeah, OK, well, that's, that's true, that's yeah, true yeah. right? Yeah, but people somehow, are lazy. Yeah. yeah. Everybody has great ideas. Not everybody acts on them, that kind of thing. Right. But somehow that got perverted into this. Well, we really only used, you know, one part of our brain. Which we know is not true. Yeah, or the the, the ten percent, right? That's the right. The percent, the ten percent, ten percent has been thrown out there. Twenty percent, it's, well, it's all over the place. Like sci-fi and and comic books love to run wild with it. You're always encountering that. It's like the normal. We only, normally we only use ten percent of our brain. Yeah. But, you know, but in this summer movie, our hero will learn to use another 5%. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. As, so as evidenced by the, the recent movie Limitless, right? Oh, is there, is there psychic, uh, craziness in that? Well, they take him, he takes a magic pill, the, uh, the hero of that, and, and then all of a sudden he's, he's on, he's firing on all cylinders and writing books and overnight. He's and, like Stephen King in the 80s. Yeah, yeah I know, okay. right? We just need to tap into Stephen yeah. King's brain and see what's going on. That would tell us a lot more. Um, but so we do know through brain scans, uh, we can verify and say, no, it's not just one part of your brain working or, and everybody else is just hanging out up there being lazy. Um, the brain scans tell us that our brains are always active with some parts more active than others, depending on the activity that we're engaging in. Right. So we talked to Dr. Pate. We said, please tell us why this continues to persist. And this is what he had to say. You know, with every myth, you know, it gets repeated over and over again. Every generation will have it. It will change perhaps a, a little bit of its bent or its leaning, uh, and it, it's just perpetuated. And, you know, some of them, as you know, uh, they're couched in what seems to be a little bit of common sense, right? Um, but we need something to hold on to. And if we do not understand um, our environment, um, we need some way to explain the beliefs in, in the world around us. 
so you get to the brain, which is a land of mystery for a lot of us. Uh, the concept mind is, 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 is still a mystery uh, for us. So we think that, well, we're not using all of our brain. So um, can we light up New York City with our brain? Because we're only using 10% of it. That's, that's a myth. No, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, because the brain is such an incredible uh, mystery environment. In fact, we hear all the time, we hear it on television and radio, and all the broadcasters will say, well, this, not, this isn't brain surgery, correct? You, you hear it every day. I heard it on television just the other day. And I think because of the mystery of the brain, not knowing what's, what's going on with the brain, we have incredible expectations of it. Beth is absolutely incorrect. And I think it's an expectation of wanting us to achieve more than perhaps what we already have. And it's a way in which we cannot explain all the mysteries of the brain that we hope the mysteries will be unraveled. And once we reach our capacity, we will be able to, you know, become super people. Okay, so basically the comic books and the sci-fi films are just completely full of it. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but he makes a really interesting point about this whole wish fulfillment fantasy that we have. Yeah. You know, that if we could just, uh, it's, it's sort of an excuse and a hope, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm not getting to that book I meant to write overnight because I'm just not using all my brain, but maybe one day I could. Yeah. And, and also the kind of like a sense of guilt too. I don't know. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, it, there's sort of like an original sin kind of a thing to it. You know, it's kind of like, like there's here's this creature with all this potential, but oh, it's held back because it's lazy or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But then again, not to bring up that movie Limitless, but I just keep thinking about it because again, it's such an uh, an interesting, seductive idea. Who's in this? I somehow missed this one. Bradley again. Cooper's in it. Um, um, God, I think Robert De Niro's in it. I haven't seen it. Oh, oh, you're talking. I thought you'd loved it. You keep talking about it. No, no. I just think oh. it as an example of what we're, we're talking oh, about okay. right now. All right. Um, I mean, I've, I've read about the plot, obviously. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not. That's, that's I'm not, how I know that he takes a right. super pill and becomes Superman. Okay. I'm not. I'm not judging you. It's it's fine. Okay. Yeah. It's not that I don't like Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro. I just haven't seen it. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So the movie, though, it made me think: Could you actually, through science, could could you create some sort of magic pill? And a lot of people have asked that question too since that movie came out. And we do know that researchers have been working on memory-enhancing drugs for Alzheimer's patients and that a memory-boosting molecule in the brain has been identified. But, I mean, this is a far cry from enhanced cognitive uh, development or even, you know, super crazy cognitive thinking. Now, when I go to the health food store, though, there are countless um, little bottles that claim to to supply (laughs) this kind of power. Well, I mean, you know that if you take Ritalin, right, you're going to become more focused. So yeah. there are certainly things that you can do that can help you, but it's not going to turn you into a super brain overnight. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? And you don't need any more super brains over there. Oh, I, I need all the brains I can get. I don't know. I don't know. So, you know, once again, we talked to Dr. Pate about this. We wanted to say, well, okay, so we know why why this myth has persisted. But how has technology changed the way that we actually think about the brain? And he had this to say. It's, uh, it's allowed us to, to appreciate the anatomy of the brain much better. And as a surgeon, we thrive for anatomical consistency. You know, it's like the appendix. It didn't have consistency, so it sort of confused us for a while. 
But we look for um, anatomical consistency as surgeons. And I'm a neurosurgeon, so that's what I want. So the imaging allowed us to better appreciate the anatomy of an incredible organ, the brain. And then from that, we went one step further. We got into the function of the brain. And now we have functioning imaging. And this has given us better insight into the normal function of the brain. Because if you don't know the normal, it's difficult to understand the abnormal. And the imaging has allowed us to better appreciate the brain in normal and abnormal states, therefore allowing us to unravel some of those mysteries of diseases, or at least begin to attack them before they announce themselves in such vigor. So neuroimaging has managed to actually really bust some of these uh, these myths we have, right? We're actually able yeah. to see what's going on, or at least get get a visual um, perspective on on brain activity. What's going on? What's going on? Where it's going on, and and how much activity is taking place? Well, and it's definitely uh, busted some of the assumptions that we have about the way that we operate. And one of the things that I was thinking about is this study about love and hate that we talked about in Love, Hate, and Robots. Yes, and this was um, research because the the uh, research scientist was thinking, you know what? There's this guy at work that I know he hates me, right. and so I want to see um, what's going on you know, with people when they hate, because his, his thought was, it's got to be some sort of impassioned, irrational thing that's happening. That part of the brain has got to be connected to this mm-hmm. emotion. But what he found is that it was actually, um, that hate is actually hanging out in the part of the brain that's very rational uh, and calculating. Hmm. So it makes us have a t- just a different view on what exactly is going on or how we perceive the way that our behavior is being expressed around us. Indeed. And then there's another thing, too, that brain damage is permanent, right? We used to always think, okay, well, if if you get in a horrible accident or something happens, you know, it's permanent. But we know about neuroplasticity, and that's the ability of the brain to heal itself. And, of course, if you've got extreme damages, um, then you probably do are, are going to sustain permanent damage. But if you've got low-level to mid-level damage, your brain can actually kind of go in there and start reforming synaptic connections. Uh, It can't recover neurons that have been lost or damaged, but those synaptic connections can be regrown, which is really incredible. I feel like that's one that that still has has some has some spreading to do, because I feel like there's still that idea out there that if like if I were to walk behind a horse and get kicked in the head, uh, whatever damage I suffered would be permanent. I think that we've seen this in other areas, too. And we talked about this with the music and um, can music rebuild your brain in that podcast. Mm -hmm. And we, we looked at Alzheimer's patients. And people who had had strokes. And again, we saw these examples of neuroplasticity where other parts of the brain could pick up and help you to relearn words. The, for instance, as a stroke patient, uh, a stroke patient might not be able to, to speak, but she may be able to sing and eventually be able to speak again through music because that part of her brain is taken over the faculties, which is pretty interesting. Right. Or, or people who relearn to, to speak via, uh, say, using their tongue to, uh, uh, to, to draw the letters on the roof of their mouths. I've heard of that as, a, as an example of someone uh, overcoming stroke. Yeah. 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 So, but like Dr. Pate says, I mean, this is, it's still very much a mystery to us, the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've got all this exciting technology in front of us today that can really help us to better understand ourselves and maybe even consciousness, right? Like what right. it means to be a conscious being or a sentient being. Just, you know, not, not nothing. <laughs> no, that, but it's a, that one's, that one is one, is one of the, uh, 
I don't know, it kind of feels like a Pandora's box at times. You know, I, I wonder, the, the more we unlock about consciousness and the more we understand, you know, what we are and who we are, uh, do we, do we stand, uh, the risk of demystifying ourselves too much? This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. Um, I, I think I've mentioned it before. There's a uh, there's a quote from uh, author uh, R. Scott Baker uh, who, who makes the argument that that consciousness is uh, it's it's like a coin trick, and uh, and if you explain the coin trick, then you can no longer see the magic. And in this scenario, we are the magic. Um, so I don't know. I think about this sometimes. Well, there's actually we'll get to this in a little bit, but there's actually something called the Blue Brain Project that is exploring this this very idea. Yeah. Who, who's in that? Well, this is is a, that a Tom York thing or no? No, oh, okay. <laughs> this is an actual project that's going on. Oh, okay. To map I know the a brain. Pro, like a sign. Oh, oh, this is the model. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but before we talk about that, we wanted to talk with Dr. Pate a little bit more about the future of neuroscience and, as a neurosurgeon, what he would love to see. Ooh, yeah. Let's find out. Uh, technology has has prompted. Um, or the disease process has prompted, you know, the blossoming of technology. As soon as we get a handle on one item, there's always another question to be answered. So I'm always cautious to say, I think as a, as a physician, a surgeon, um, an educator, we always think that we're at, at that, the greatest point of discovery. Um, and at this time of our being, we are. That's the greatest thing. And one would hope for marvelous things to, to come about. Um, the best thing I, I think we're going to be looking at in, in the future is, uh, is, uh, is um, at least with the brain, is continued understanding and, and to define, you know, uh, pathology, how the brain responds to tumors, whether they're primary tumors or they're tumor on the outside of the brain, it's pushing on the brain, how the, how the brain responds to pathology. And secondly, I think the great thing that I would hope to see in my lifetime is the ability of the uh, spinal cord and the brain to, to come about with, as you put down, the plasticity, the ability to repair itself and have return to functioning, to have a stroke patient uh, um, who has a dominant hemispheric infarct uh, with the ability to communicate or speak better, uh, the spinal cord injured patient who's, uh, who's destined uh, today to be on the ventilator or wheelchair dependent for life and and rely upon others for all care to be able to arise independently from a chair. That's what I would hope. So I think that's that's actually I can see as a surgeon how he would really want to see the the spinal cord and the brain be able to better talk to each other um, and for eventually patients to be able to walk. It makes a lot of sense that that is what he's after right now. Right. Um, and and surely you know we'll be making some good strides with that. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about some existing technology right now as it relates to the brain. And we know that there's a portable MRI available. Right. And we know that there's a Meg scanner, which is super cool. This was, I believe this came out in the 2001, 2002, something like that. There's only about a hundred of them in existence, but a Meg scanner is a magnetic encephalography. 
It's imaging technology that can non-invasively detect brain electromagnetic activity lasting only milliseconds. And the speed of communications in neural circuits, uh, whereas other functioning brain imaging like fMRI technology can only capture activity that lasts seconds or minutes and some involve radiation exposure. So this is this. We talked about this a little bit about uh, when we were talking about dogs and um, people's connection to infants and puppies. Right. And they actually put them in one of these MEG scanners and within one seventh of a second, they could detect that. Uh, it was, I believe it was the orbital cortex was looking at these pictures of puppies and infants and lighting up and going nuts. So it just gives us a little, a little bit more of a fine tuning mechanism to look at the brain. And this is, uh, some of the technology that we, as we discussed in the eat popcorn episode yeah. that could eventually lead to a situation where you could have advertisements reading your mind and seeing what uh, your reaction is to various, uh, uh, physical, uh, not physical, uh, visual or auditory uh, stimuli. Yeah, actually, and it was Paul Root Wolpe. He's the director of ethics at Emory University. And he was the guy that said, look, it is possible right now to beam light into your front cortex and that the receptors would get a reflection of that light, essentially scanning your brain and interpreting your thoughts as you concentrated on something. And that's why we brought it up in the Eat Popcorn podcast, because it was like, you know, that that could be used in marketing so very easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be happening right now. Who knows? Um, but I did want to talk a little bit more about the Blue Brain Project. Yes. The, which is a model of the brain. Yes. Yes. Not, and, a, and not, not the, a Tom York song. Not a Tom York song. And not a model of the brain like the little plastic one that comes out of the visible man skeleton. Right, right. right. There's there's no uh, plastic going on here. It was started in June 2005, and it's a 10-year joint venture between IBM and uh, EP. FL, which is short for École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne. I apologize for that. <laughs> that was the best I could do there. And it's the, the main focus is to reverse engineer the brain and they're building a detailed, realistic computer model of the human brain and it's 100 trillion synapses. Wow. Yeah. So the first phase of this was actually completed in 2007. Um, this is actually from the director of this project. And this quote is, current technology is now allowing us to qualify that tabula rasa hypothesis, which argues that our brains are a blank slate at birth and we only gain knowledge through experience. It's an idea that has permeated science for centuries. There is no question that knowledge in the sense that we typically understand it, reading and writing, recognizing our friends, learning a language is the result of our experiences. But the EPFL's team's work demonstrates that some of our fundamental representations or basic knowledge is inscribed in our genes. Which is like, whoa. Okay. Because neuroscientists have been saying this for a long time. Okay. If you've, if, um, if you have ADD or ADHD, these, these are things that aren't necessarily, uh, things that came from your environment that you acquired through your environment. And so we should start looking at this. And, uh, through neuroscience and ways to treat it and right. start considering the person as a whole, um, knowing that they came prepackaged with some of these things, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and this is from Med City News. Uh, their, their article is called Brain Stimulation is Goal of the Blue Brain Supercomputing Project. Blue Brain can model components of the mammalian brain in precise cellular detail and simulate neuronal activity in 3D. Soon, Blue Brain will be able to simulate a whole rat brain in real time. Wow. I know I mean, that's been a personal dream of mine to live long <laughs> enough to see a, a rat brain uh, 
in, uh, generated in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, again, the project director, Henry Markram, I don't believe I said his name before, but Henry Markram, he did, has a really good TED.com talk on this. And he was basically saying, well, we can't use mice forever. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know why he thinks maybe we're going to run out <laughs> of mice. Um, but for him, obviously, it's just a better way to look at the human brain. And so he thinks that this computer model is actually going to bear out a theory that the brain creates a version of the universe and then projects it like a bubble all around us. Huh. Yeah. So that that's the consciousness part, well, yeah, right? Well, that's pretty mind-blowing right there. Yeah, it's crazy. And, um, I mean, it, it's basically like mathematics is animating our neurons for us to look at. And Seed Magazine's article out of the blue says that if the project succeeds, it will have taken the self and turned it into something that we can see, the wow. sense of self. And then will we be horrified? Will we be enlightened? Will, well, uh, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. The magic trick. It's like the jig is up. I mean, do you, is it what we thought it was? Or, you know, do we, are we just these, you know, Pre-assembled packages. I mean, does it really matter the environments, you know, that we're in and how much we learn from that or, you know, it's that whole nature versus nurture question. Right. But John, you know, I don't think it's actually going to answer it definitively. No, probably not. I mean, there's, there's, this is one of those things that we're going to continue to chew on for quite some time. I feel like the, 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 the technology is going to improve, uh, tremendously. It's going to give us even more tools to, to better analyze, but, uh, it just feels like one of those things that we're just, the, the more question, more questions are going to come up with every answer. Well, and there's always been the, the philosophical aspect of it too, yeah. right? That the, the brain is the seat of the soul, essentially. Right. Um, when in fact we know that our guts are telling us a lot. Yeah. <laughs> our guts right now are telling us how we feel, you know, in an emotional sense, like sending all sorts of signals. Um, so it's not just, you know, the, the three pounds of gray matter sitting atop our necks, you know, doing everything. Uh, but it's certainly interesting that people are reverse engineering it and, and looking at um, the, the seat of the soul, so to speak. Well, hey, let's move on to some listener mail then. All right. This one from a listener by the name of Malachi. Malachi gave us a, a rather long email, and I don't, I can't read it all, but um, he picked up some some particularly mind blowing stuff from a uh, pharmacology class that he was that uh, he was a part of. Okay. And uh, so sk- skipping a bit and getting right to the chase here, he says, where this starts getting into the area of blowing my mind is that when you examine all the molecules that make up living things, they are all left-handed versions of molecules. All the amino acids in your body are composed of the L-isomer form of that molecule. It appears that all uh, all life on Earth evolved from an original common ancestor that just happened to be using left-handed amino acids. It would seem that it is pure chance that life evolved with a preference for left-handed isomers. After all, an organism made entirely from right-handed amino acids could function in theory. It would just be a mirror image, down to the molecular level of its counterpart, left-handed version. Alien species on another world could be composed entirely of left, uh, I mean, of right-handed isomers. So, whoa, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, thanks, Malachi. And uh, if you have anything uh, mind-blowing to share, or you have uh, some thoughts on a recent episode, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can also drop us a note at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. 
The How Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs>